welcome to the 43rd episode of Roots and Hoots, a podcast series produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Join us in celebrating stories of the success, resilience, and cultures of Indigenous peoples across Canada. Indigenous community facilitator, survivor, and host Gordon Spence brings you along on the journey as we learn about guest contributions through art, music, business, politics, education, and community leadership. Indigenous peoples have always affected positive change throughout Canada. Roots and Hoots aims to create a better understanding of Indigenous peoples and their cultures in order to bridge the path forward on truth and reconciliation in Canada. If these stories interest or inspire you and you would like to hear more, please like, subscribe, and leave a review. Podcasts are available through Podbean, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Today's guest is Morgan Hare. Mr. Hare is from the Chiging First Nation on Manitoulin Island. He has been involved in urban Indigenous program development for over 30 years. Mr. Hare is the president of Hare Consulting Group Incorporated and most recently worked as a project manager for one of the United Churches in Ottawa to look at building a reconciliation community project that can benefit both the congregation and the urban Indigenous community. Mr. Hare has extensive experience in senior management, having worked with the Odawa Native Friendship Centre for many years and the Tunga Suvingat Inuit Community Centre for over two decades. Mr. Hare has extensive financial and administrative experience in the delivery of programs and services and shares in this episode about what he sees as some of his greatest career achievements, as well as what his hopes are for the future of reconciliation in Canada. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to this podcast of Indigenous Roots and Roots. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guest is Morgan Hare. Hello, Morgan. How are you today? Not too bad, Gordon. I'm I'm doing very well. Looking forward to the podcast today. Why don't we begin by talking a bit about your family background? I know you're from Michigan, uh, <clears throat> on Manitoulin Island. Tell us a bit about your community, your family, and your cultural heritage. Well. You know, I'm from Chiging, Chiging First Nations uh, Reserve. I was born there on Manitoulin Island. And for those that don't know it, it's known as the largest lake water island in the world. It has over 100 lakes inside of Manitoulin Island. And the my cultural identity uh, is I'm of uh, Ojibwe descent. Manitoulin Island is mostly Ojibwe, Ojibwe um, people. We have around seven, I believe, around seven First Nations uh, reserves on Manitoulin. I come from a family of seven, seven children, along with my parents, uh, nine of us, and we grew up in a little, in a little house in the middle of nowhere. As as a child, uh, I remember. I remember just uh, basically we were living off the land when when I was um, you know a baby to up, to up to the age of five or six I guess is when we moved into a what I would call a house. My parents are both Ojibwe and plus they're fluent. They're fluent in Ojibwe. They spoke to us in Ojibwe, and all us kids were fluent in Ojibwe before we entered primary school. So. My mom would uh, tell us stories that I don't remember this, but that us kids spoke back to our parents when we weren't in school yet in fluent Ojibwe. And, uh, and, and once we started primary school, that's when everything changed. We didn't, we didn't speak our language after that. 
so up to that time, and that's uh, we basically lived a very, uh, a very, I would say, culturally, with the language being the strongest, and with the hunting, the fishing, and everything else that uh, before we, before we saw commercialization coming into the community. But up to the age of, uh, I guess, ten, maybe we lived, we lived very much off the land uh, from fishing and hunting that my dad did. And my mom would do her her responsibilities. So basically, it was survival uh, survival for our family uh, like that. To to live the old way of life was to us kids anyway. From what I could remember, was a lot of fun, you know. Even though we other individuals like other non-indigenous people communities would would think otherwise that we really struggled. But to me, as a child, it was uh, a very loving family and and supportive and everything else so and from a cultural standpoint we didn't have any powwows that started at that time either we didn't have our community didn't 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 have powwows back then we just basically it was uh whatever whatever stories my dad told about the old days and my mom uh, how they lived and how they struggled and what their parents went through and um uh, and plus, we had animals. We had horse. Uh, we had horses back then as well to to travel to my grandmother's place. So we didn't have a the mode of transportation back then was no vehicles. There was no internet, no TVs, or nothing. We just basically uh, traveled by horse and buggy and and just walking everywhere. So it was it was, it was quite a different time. Are there any other uh, reserves on Manitoulin Island? I know there's one other one, the big one there. Uh, what's it called? Uh, Wequemekong. Yes, yes. Are there others? Yeah, yeah there, there's uh, Sucker Creek. It's changed its name now. I don't know what it is now, but it changed to, to back to their traditional names. There's Wequemekong. There's Shegwenda and Birch Island. And there's three other small ones, but they're smaller populated reserves. Uh, I forget. I forget. The, the names of those uh, of the other three reserves, but uh, there's about seven in total. Do you have any uh, interaction with them? What's your relationship with the other communities? I mean, Chiging. Do you guys have any interaction? Yeah. As, uh, as the years went on, there was more and more, uh, but as a child, up to the age of maybe from what I can remember when I left, I left when I was 17, 18, but I, I did go home from time to time. And, and I did notice there was more and more interaction with the other reserves on a, a bit more. But when we were my first 20 years, I didn't see very much interaction because the communication wasn't, wasn't there with the other reserves. We just basically uh, stayed, stayed, a lot of the, the people in Chiging stayed in Chiging. The people that had vehicles were able to go to Sudbury or Espanola or Sault Ste. Marie, some of the larger suburban centers. But most of, most of the people didn't have vehicles, so we didn't really get to know anybody. It wasn't until I entered uh, high school. The high, there's one high school for Manitoulin Island, and it's on is just is just borders the Chiging Reserve, and that's the high school I attended, and that was probably the first time where I got to see a lot of kids, First Nations kids from the other 
you know, from the other reserves uh, going to the same school. And also the non-Indigenous students that attended. We, we had about maybe uh, 12 to 1,300 students attending Manitoulin Secondary School. And that was the first time I, I, I remember interacting with, with many, many kids from all over the island. Did you or uh, any of your family members attend uh, a residential school? No, my parents um, escaped. Um, I guess that's the word I would use, escaped the residential school. The, their parents hid them in the bushes every time an Indian agent came by to scoop up any kids on the reserve. So they were able to, to avoid the residential school the residential school that they were supposed to go to, as long as the kids were hidden and word got out that this person was coming from Indian Affairs, uh, so there were some, uh, so there were children that weren't taken. It, uh, so my parents, in my in my circumstances, weren't. Uh, they did they didn't go to residential school at all. Where would the where would the students go? What when, when was the, uh, the town? Or where was the residential school? Located closest to your reserve. I the one with the uh, Espanola, which is about 45 minutes away, was, I think, the closest one. And wow. I think the other one, the Blind River, uh, yeah. the one in Blind River, I think was the, I don't think there was one in Espanola. I think people refer to a residential school in Espanola when it's actually just a little bit further than Espanola, which is uh, Blind River. And, and possibly the one in uh, Sault Ste. Marie as well. I mean, that's not that far, like, for residential school. Like, uh, a lot of kids uh, were taken, like, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, like, to be that close. I mean, uh, it must have been challenging. I know it's been difficult for students uh, moving away from home and uh, being a, a survivor, you know. It sometimes makes me wonder, like, what my life would have been if, if I didn't go to residential school. And, and uh you're, you're right there, but a lot of people uh, hid their children. They took them into the bushes in the fall when, around the time when the Indian agent would be coming. This would be late, late, uh, would be in the fall, early in the fall, when the Indian agents used to go around scooping up kids. Don't intentionally use that word scooping up, but that's basically what they did, right? Uh, and, and some families took their kids and, uh, to their trap lines or, you know, somewhere in the bush so that the Indian agent wouldn't be wouldn't wouldn't take them away. No. Yeah, I'm I'm grateful that that my parents did not attend and carry you know uh, and carry on the trauma of them attending the residential school. Like they ended up not getting an education, but their life was much. I would say what was much better because my dad was able to carry on working in the bush, working for the band, uh, just like a, like a general laborer, but the the secondary education or primary education was not there for for them because their parents were afraid to put to put them into that uh, residential school. Do you notice any uh, difference between families that have uh, gone to residential school? Um, that would be about your age, older maybe, and uh, younger in some cases. Do you notice any differences in the families that that went to you know that went to residential school? And like your family didn't go, so do you, do you notice any differences in, in, in how they they live their lives? Or like, do you notice any difference in in their lifestyles? That's that's a really good question. Uh, no, a lot of people went to 
residential school from my reserve. They ended up coming back to the reserve and living out their life. Their jobs were on the reserve or, or they lived on reserve and got jobs uh, within two hours away from, you know, from the island. I hesitate to answer that question because I, I really don't know. I do remember, I do remember one person talking about residential school, the, the one that he attended, and he had a good experience. And he came back to the reserve, and he got his education and and, and came home. And, and again, and again, our residential school on Manitoulin Island wasn't that far away. And as you mentioned, Gord, there. Were, Many children were taken away and had to go 500, 200, or 1,000 miles away from their home. And they never returned home till the year was over or once a year, maybe, or twice a year, depending how far away they were. Right. And I can, I, can just imagine, I can just imagine those stories. But, but where, where we were, we were located closer and also the experience the things that went on in residential schools, I think the one that the people from Manitoulin went to was there was less issues with abuse. Yeah. And that's, that's from talking to a couple of people that, that attended and that was their experience. Anyway, they had more of a positive experience rather than negative where others would, would say the opposite. Uh, maybe Maybe he had good teachers, maybe, and there were other bad teachers. I don't know, but yeah. But anyways, that was his story. There's a lot of positive stories, and there's a lot of bad stories as well. The one thing that I noticed, and this was this one one case, is that uh, there was a there's a a community uh, of kids that went to a residential school, and they they started going there when they were like. Uh, five, six years old, from grade one to right, right to high school, grade 12. And uh, I noticed that these guys, compared to some other some other families that did not attend uh, residential school, they acted, they were different. They had, they struggled with alcohol. There was violence more, more in their families and their communities than the ones that, that didn't attend residential school. I found the ones that and then this is it's just a small sample. I found the ones that, that did not attend from my reserve were seemed to have their life together. They may not have had the education that we received and achieved, but uh, they seem to be more grounded, you know, uh, more settled yeah. in, in their life. Not as no yeah. anger, no no drug or alcohol problems with them, but you know, so there is yeah. uh, there's some differences there in in in, in areas like that. Yeah, I wanted to also just move on a little bit about, talk a little bit about your work experience. You spent some time in the Canadian Armed Forces. What made you decide to make this move and was it a positive experience? Did you do any traveling? When I joined in 75, I completed my high school and I tried college and it wasn't doable for me. I didn't have the attention the attention span or I don't know. I, I just couldn't do it. I tried. I was just this um, young, naive kid uh, just leaving grade 12. And, and I never knew about post-secondary education until my last year of high school. And uh, the, the experience for me that, 
first year was quite was quite traumatic for me because I I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And uh, after the first semester, I said to myself, I'm going to end up flunking out anyways, so I may as well look for another career. The employment opportunities back home were next to zero, aside from the ban office employees, but uh, there was no job openings. And, uh, and there had to be more opportunities outside of the reserve in my mind. And I, was, and I didn't want to stay on the reserve and look for work uh, when, it lo- when it looked pretty bleak. So after college, I, uh, after the first semester, I stopped by in Sudbury at the recruiting center for the military and I decided to do the testing, the testing and um, the aptitude tests. And then I, next thing I knew, January of uh, 76, I went to basic training in the military and I stayed in for five years and I traveled to, uh, I was in the Navy for two years and I was in the Air Force for two and a half. Well, while I was in the Navy, I traveled uh, maybe for six months to uh, South America. Yeah. And back and forth to uh, like the U.S., the U.S. and uh, some um, ports in uh, Canada. But that but that that was about it. And then in, then I got posted to Winnipeg to Winnipeg for two and a half years in the Air Force. So I got to I got to do a little bit of traveling and. And I think the four and a half years I spent in the military was really good for me. And I, I got a lot of experience, uh, more so I got training, training and, and also a lot of discipline. I was trained to be a, to report to work on time, to pay attention to what's going on and get my training in. So I, I was more suited for the military than I was going to college at the time because I was basically told what to do in the military in in a college setting it's basically up to you to 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 finish a two-year program on your own if you couldn't do it you basically just flunked out at least in the military i was able to get my training paid for and i got a salary and i was able to travel and and i said that's pretty good i'll give it i'll give the military a try and that's what i decided to do it's probably the best decision i ever made because i really got to make some close friends and I was able to look at my work life in a different perspective after, after leaving the military. What kind of training did you receive when you were in the, uh, in the Canadian Air Forces? Basically uh, basic training for three months, which gave you a lot of training in all the different areas uh, 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 when you joined the military. Discipline was a big one. After, after basic training, I entered the trades training. And my, the trade that I, that I chose was, was administration, administrative clerk. So then I was off to Toronto. They sent me to Toronto in Camp Gordon for uh, two months to take my trades training. And then after that, I was posted to the Navy after that. And then I completed my four and a half years and, and then left after that. Sounds really interesting. I always wondered about the Canadian Armed Forces. And I actually thought about joining myself at one time. But um, some other thing came up and I ended up coming out west and coming out east. 
you were also spent some time in the correctional services field. I left the military and uh, shortly after I left, I, I got a job with not immediately with Correctional Services of Canada, but I had a one-year stint with an organization called Native Clan Organization based right downtown Winnipeg. And I uh, worked for them. And basically, I was uh, a Native liaison worker going to the the medium and high-security penitentiaries. What was that like? I... After five years, I was burnt out. I were, With Native Clan, it was great. And then I entered Correctional Services of Canada. I got a job as a parole officer. Yeah. And being a parole officer was, uh, was, quite, was, was quite something. It was quite stressful yeah. because, because you, you had to basically supervise very uh, dangerous uh, inmates in the community and when i became a parole officer i wasn't an indi- i was not classified as indigenous parole officer i was a i was just a regular parole officer and my clients were was anyone that was incarcerated so so i had some really really tough clientele and i and after five years i said you know like i'm going to get burnt out i better leave before i get really burnt out because I just found the job very, uh, very stressful, and it was a, a good career, but it just wasn't, it, it's hard to, I, I found it better working with Native Clan as a Native liaison worker. It's kind of an interesting concept. When I worked for them, I was right in the population. I was, there was no security. I was working with the Native inmates right inside right with them. I was right inside the walls, right with them. Story and yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was fun. I, I never felt I was in danger. Even if there was a riot, I, I just felt comfortable working with the indigenous inmates in, inside. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I did that for one year and, and then the corrections came along and said, and offered me the job as parole, which I never should have taken. I should have just stayed as a native liaison worker because yeah. I found programming a lot more fun than babysitting individuals, uh, parolees on the streets. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a different, it's very different kind of job. So. You also spent many years uh, working in Ottawa. I know that's, that's where I, I met you, I think, for the first time when uh, I came here. And then uh, I met you here when I worked at the Friendship Center. And then you all you started working with the Inuit. I think it's called the Tungusun. We got Inuit in Ottawa on the Inuit Native Center. And you also worked with the, the Friendship Center. But start with the Inuit Center. You worked here for with them for about, what, 10 years or so, or maybe more? Eight years? I started in 19... 19- 90 and left in 2012 so 22 years wow i I spent 22 yeah i spent 22 years with yeah and i and i actually thought i was going to end my career with tunga subingan anyway i i loved it there i would have stayed for another 20 but it, it it wasn't meant to be i i guess when you work for nonprofit organizations i i really enjoyed my time there and i uh 
I got to see what my capacity is as a as a manager. You, you don't know where things will, when opportunities ar- arise to become the executive director, but my executive director at the time left the organization due to a medical medical reason. And she asked me if I wanted the job and she would make the recommendation to the board. And I've never done the job before. I said to her, are you planning on coming back? I can do it on a part-time basis, interim, but I've never done this before. I, I said, I've always been I've always been a worker. I've never been in management before. She said, I can, I, I think you can do the job. The organization is, uh, you, you know, the organization inside out. So it only makes sense for you to be elevated to the position. I said, I'll give it a try and see how it goes for a couple of years. And the next thing I know, I ended up staying for 22 years in total. And the last eight or nine years was as executive director. And, um, and I'm quite proud of the accomplishments that I, when I headed up the organization as their executive director, we were up to maybe, I would say, 10 million a year in our budget. Uh, that included capital, wow. uh, a couple of million in capital. But we were flying. We, we were flying. Uh, we were flying with our programs and our projects and in uh, our capital. And we had five sites and. We were just so happy with where the agency was going, but anyways, uh, changes had to be made at a certain at a certain time, and I left the organization around 2012, and then uh, a job came up with the Odawa Friendship Center shortly after, and I applied for it, and I became their executive director for. The next, yeah, I think close to seven, eight years. Yeah. And I got Odawa through a hard time. When I took over, they were moving, just moving from Sterling to the city center, which was a very difficult time for me to, to come in when everything was upside down. Yeah. Um, but it was a challenge. And, and my with my experience, the board said, we want your experience. I said, okay, you got it. I'm interested in working for Odawa. And they hired me. And. I did the transition, the move, and then I had to plan a third move to the high school, which I negotiated with the school board to go to where the where Odawa is today on St. Laurent. So our, uh, our budget or my budget, the organization budget, was quite positive when I started, and I think I uh, Odawa grew in in areas that uh, I went after. Um, I went after a lot of major funding, but uh, probably the my highlights from both TI and Odawa was starting the early year center at Odawa and getting 1.5 million in capital to renovate the early year center, which is a beautiful center. I I never got to see the end, but it was being under construction when I left. Is that the one on uh, 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 on St. Laurent? That's right. That's right. Okay, the old Rideau High School. The Rideau High School, yeah. Yeah. So I was quite happy. I got the program funding, multi-year, and, and I got the capital. And plus, I found uh, the high school as well. But I had to move my butt very quickly to get the high school because 
if we had stayed at city city center, we would have gone broke. And I knew that I was at a meeting with uh, Odawa one time, and we brought in the Aboriginal Financial Officers Association just down the street from us. And we had the executive director come in with his financial expertise. And he said, he said to me that, Morgan, uh, in six months, we determined that Odawa will fold as an organization because the funding just cannot sustain itself. And I said, I said to him that I don't think it will because I said, we've been put in this situation and I've been, I'm in this position to get us out of this problem. So we ended up, I ended up looking around and, and I found the high school and cut a deal, went to the board and I said, we got a high school. Uh, it looks like we can get it and let's go for it. So we did a lot of negotiation to get that school location. So I'm quite proud of that. And with TI, just to go back there for a minute, I was quite happy with the medical center on in Vanier was under my uh, directorship. And I was involved with Connie Sidul, uh, my director, and we got that kick-started. And also the addictions treatment center, we got that kick-started as well. And also the urban Inuit projects I got I was working on that that kept going after I left and we also had partnerships up north with the uh, Kakabak and the regions and we also we also struck a deal with the Aboriginal Healing Foundation back then with TI where they approached me to administer the agreement for the Friendship Center in Rankin Inlet and Rankin Inlet wanted to do addiction services to seven outlining Inuit communities. So we said yes to AHF at the time. And I said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're good to go. And uh, we can manage the project and we can disseminate uh, the payments to the Friendship Center and we can monitor the reporting process. And uh, so we had a, a number of funding partnerships with the Aboriginal Healing Foundation as well. So, so we were... Uh, purchasing uh, housing housing as well at the time uh, we got some housing like 30 beds in the east end so I was quite proud of the accomplishments that I had as their executive director and again I didn't know what kind of a ED I would make for the agencies but it turned out pretty good and I and I'm quite proud of the achievements that that I was able to accomplish uh, uh, with the two with the two agencies yeah absolutely. He did a marvelous job, I think. And like a lot of people still talk about you and because you spent a lot of time at Odawa and at TI, people still mention you. And I I miss you. I miss seeing you there too. I've been there a few times since you left. And it just doesn't seem the same. You know, uh, the personnel have changed. A number of long, long-standing uh, employees have also left the organization. So there's a whole... Uh, there's a whole new face there. The, the the money you got for the Friendship Center for the renovations, they've actually started when I was there maybe last week. There was they were doing renovations and it's actually looking pretty good. They also I also want, just want to mention the medical clinic that you started, the family clinic that you you started for the Inuit. It's actually uh, in Vanier. It's on South Creek Avenue. It's, it's where I go for my medical appointments, and it's called <laughs> Calisonic, a Calisonic uh, Inuit Family Center. So 
and it's it's it's, it's a good place. It's not huge, you know. It's not like Wabano, uh, yes. but it, it's it's small and it's very comfortable and, and you provide a good service. You, know. you have left the legacy of sorts in Ottawa, so you've done a good job. You're now in. Uh, you moved to Newfoundland. You started a job there with the Friendship Centers. Tell us a bit about briefly about the Friendship Center movement. Uh, they call it a movement. It's, I don't see it more as a movement now. It's kind of stabilized. People have, you know, there's less migration of indigenous people to, to the cities. And I think that's what the, the original purpose was for the Friendship Center, for to help indigenous people, First Nations people mainly, looking for work, schooling, uh, health reasons, moving to the city for those different, different reasons, uh, jobs. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that and, uh, and your involvement with them at the beginning? I think you were also with GoFIC. You want to talk a little bit about that? My careers with Indigenous agencies uh, like the OFIFC, uh, Ontario Federation of Indigenous Friendship Centers, and with a local friendship center like uh, Odawa and the Friendship Center here in St. John's, I was with them for close to nine months. The National Office of the Friendship Centers, NAFC, to this day, I think they do an invaluable service to the, to the communities they serve. However, there needs to be more done. I mean, I, I, I can see what friendship centers do, but I do, what I don't see is there's so much, there's so many people that, that need uh, critical, really critical services. Some communities are reaching those goals, but I find that when I read reports, when I read that our people are suffering from many, many social issues, what can we do? We put staff on the ground, outreach workers, or we do all these different kinds of programs, arts and uh, arts programs, cultural and, and employment training. They're, they're all good. They're all good. But what I find is, uh, and then this, then this is a question I've, I've always wrestled with. And, and, and this is why my experience with TI in Ottawa has always been, my mind is always going to bigger projects. My mind is always going. And I need to be, maybe I needed to be in a different position where I can fly with my ideas a bit more. Because, because with TI, as you know, I created some major programming. Maybe that was my demise from the organization is because it just became too big. Uh, but I felt that Inuit needed major programming and major partnerships. And I ran everything by the board. Everything was run by the board. And I did the briefing and everything. And I felt if everybody was 100% and, and, and we built an empire, I would say a mini empire. But TI was still a small center and we had so many services for the for the local community and and we wanted to reach out and do partnerships with the communities that didn't have much in the north well we wanted to flow money up there and and i kept saying to the north sometimes i said no uh, uh, we can help we can help but i can't take all the money from the northern pot all the time because i'm i'm down south here I can tap into the money they can tap into because I've got the capacity to get projects, get projects submitted on time and get the money and get the money from the federal government. And I always felt that 
I went after too much money sometimes and got too many things started. And even with Odawa, I, I had a bigger picture in mind. Even when we went to the high school, I had a vision of taking over that entire school, but I know we had to share it. But I really wanted the entire school. And uh, I just had a bigger vision all the time. And when I when I came to uh, Newfoundland, and I just know that there's there's more that we can do in areas of uh, maybe talk about child welfare in, in a bigger way. The Friendship Center movement, when you ask me that question, Gord, I know Friendship Centers across the country are, are, are doing really good work for the funding that they get. Friendship Centers get core funding of around 100000 a year. Most Friendship Centers, some of the ones that are politically active, they get 200000 a year. St. John's, their core funding is 195000 a year. Odawa just went up to 140, 40, 146 from 114. The OTI, to this day, when I was working there, we had core funding of 80,000. That's all I had to work with. From 80,000, we went to 10 million, but my core funding never increased. It was like I was wasting my time trying to get trying to increase my core funding. The only way I could do that is to go after big projects that gave me uh, good, excellent administration fees to complement my core budget. And that's that's how I had to do, that's how I had to run with the budget all the time because the core funding that the federal government gives to friendship centers is is minimal. Yeah. We need to we need to look at the bigger vision again of fighting with the federal government fighting with the provincial government to make to make it more adequate for centers that every friendship center across this country should be at three to four hundred thousand core funding a year and we're not even seeing that we're only seeing the same amounts that have been there for 30 40 years and uh, and and sometimes the federal government wants to cut the friendship centers by 20 percent and i can just imagine being cut down to back to 100 when you're at 146 and it's and, and and the funding is not safe like the any government can come in and cut make major cuts to the friendship centers so to answer your question i think uh, the friendship centers do not get enough funding to do what they what they should be doing but they're doing the best with what they with what they got when you were still with from and you were you were still at the city center building I had a meeting. I went there with, with a group of people, and uh, they were uh, some of them were were Inuit and uh, First Nations, and you were there, and we were talking about getting this sewing group going. And I, I don't know if you remember that. And uh, it, a group of Inuit women wanted to start a sewing sewing group. So you know that's kind of, that was kind of at the initial stages of this idea. And well, you know, uh, Morgan, they do have that Inuit sewing group not put together now. They're doing really well. They're awesome. Called, they're, do, they're called Issa White. And uh, they're operating out of the Odawa Friendship Center on San Laurent. They have their own space and they're making beautiful stuff. And they're also they're starting to include men in some of the stuff that they do. So. Uh, another piece of your legacy 
So, uh, <laughs> that's great. That's a, that's a great story. Yeah. We're always getting to the end of the podcast. I'm going to ask you a question that ties into something else that you may be doing. Um, you started a, a hair consulting group incorporated. I'm not sure you're the president. That's your company. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you've also... You've also done some work with the churches uh, more recently. So are these tied together? Are you working uh, with the churches? And how's how's that going? Is it under your hair consulting group that you're you're doing this work with them? I'm starting to. Hair consulting group is a is a for profit entity called, uh, created as a social as a social purpose organization with the goal of, of achieving reconciliation, meaningful reconciliation. So meaning. The work I do with the churches is is about reconciliation, and what I'm finding since since I started talking to them back in 2019 when I was with Odawa, because I was trying to get space for the Odawa justice team closer to the courthouse. There were two churches that were about to close down. Developers were trying to trying to access their facility. And the, the pastors for those churches were trying to find a partner. And I mentioned to them, I'm with Ottawa, I'm their executive director, and I developed a relationship with, uh, with them. And the, the plan was to address reconciliation through a partnership with Ottawa and the local church on Elgin Street, uh, St. Mark's. So uh, after I left, I continued to work with the church before Hair Consulting Group just as a program. I was their program manager for about a year and a half. Uh, it's just funding that I got on my own. And, and they hired me from that fund as a, as a contractor. It wasn't with Hair Consulting Group at the time. So I approached Odawa to see if we got the capital retrofit dollars for the Elgin Street location, would you be interested in sharing space with the church? where you would rent for next to nothing, maybe 3,000 square feet for next to nothing, maybe just assist with overhead and the church can have their space up up, uh, up above. But it's right on Elgin Street as well. And I said, it's a perfect, perfect opportunity where we can renovate that to design it to how you guys want it. And uh, this is what I was trying to do for the Odawa organization. And they they weren't interested uh, they they had other when management changed they went through another they didn't have time for it so uh, to make a long story short I'm still working with those two churches those those two church facilities in the spirit of reconciliation what I'm trying to do is to try and find a meaningful programming that that can be delivered out of those two locations whether it be shared, whether the building gets owned by the indigenous agency. But the churches are trying to, what I'm, what I'm noticing is that the churches are trying to find out how they, can, how they can work with indigenous organizations. What can they do to make up for the, in the injustices in the past? And they, they're having a hard time trying to figure that out. They would like to right the wrongs of the past but they don't want to upset any indigenous groups that they don't want to partner because of the 
residential schools and just what happened in the past. They just they just don't know what to do. And my job is to bridge those relationships. And that's what I'm trying to do. They're they're open with me. They like me. They want to work with me. And whether we do something here consulting group, maybe I do something out of those two buildings. But if I can bring my job is to either do it myself or bridge it with another agency that can see the vision of buying a building for $1 from a church, you know, in the spirit of reconciliation or renting long-term for 25 years at minimal rent right downtown in Ottawa. So uh, there's the other location is in the market right by the University of Ottawa. So I'm, I'm working on that as with a vision with them right now. I'm also working with, with other Indigenous uh, nonprofit organizations. I'm trying to get my name out there to do private consulting at a nominal rate because I call myself as a social purpose organization. So uh, my, my fees aren't as high as a regular consultant would be. And also uh, back home, uh, in Chiging, I'm liaising with Gamar Radio, for example. They're interested in hiring me as a consultant for their Indigenous language program. They, they have funding, but it's very minimal. So I'm going to be working with them, hopefully by the summer. So I'm, I'm doing the work there to, uh, with the churches, with Hair Consulting Group and, and Indigenous groups and forming partnerships and direct delivery of programs if I have to. Just to maybe put a bug in your ear, you say you have these two facilities that you're kind of trying to decide what to do with them. Two churches is a big problem in Ottawa. Maybe you could, you know, do something in that area, you know, uh, provide some rooms, uh, make some rooms, like, you know, bedrooms or, you know, accommodations for individuals. That's kind of something that's, uh, that's badly needed. I think not just here, but probably in, in most major centers across Canada. You know, worry about the, the, what they're doing in Vancouver, the people that are, you know, set up, they had a kind of like a tent village, and uh, I think it's Vancouver, they were taken down with no plan in place, where are these people going to go? So so they're kind of, they kind of uh, dropped the ball on that one. So, and you know, for housing. So something to think about. And uh, also, uh, you talked about reconciliation, working with the church and trying to, you know, Touched a little bit about on it, but what do you what what's your thoughts about reconciliation? What do uh, people need to do, native people or non-native people? Uh, what's your feelings about reconciliation in Canada? This is such a great question. Probably the best question out of all the, you know, when I read the questions, they were pretty straightforward, and then I came to question number nine, and I found this as an excellent excellent question because because the word reconciliation is certainly the buzzword across the country with all the events that have occurred everywhere you know the bodies that were found in the residential schools out west and every everywhere where it's just astronomical like i but reconciliation to me is a word that we need to look at this very carefully as to what reconciliation will be for the future generations after we're gone. 
indigenous peoples across the country have, have done remarkable work to the best of their abilities to try and convince the federal government and the churches to do something about what they did wrong back then. What, what can we do? We look at the TRC report, the, the 94 calls to action, and, and, and you look at the countless reports prior to the TRC report, and, and they're, just, they're just shelved. This particular area is something that is close to my heart. I want to do, I want to do as much as I can in, in this area. And when we talk about, when we talk about uh, child welfare, that's huge. I mean, there's still kids being taken into care. We, we don't have enough resources, but child welfare, we have to make a difference. And how can we make a difference in looking after our children from being taken into care all the time in high numbers? Even to this day, I'm still seeing, even in my community, we're still seeing children taken into uh, foster care, taken into adoption, and the families are left just with lack of resources for, for them to get well and a lack of a lack of everything in, in that area, we really need to see a big difference in funding in, in that area. And you, and you take a look at health, the health of our communities on reserve is, uh, has to be looked at, the capital infrastructure, the, uh, and then you look down at some of the other ones like justice, the percentage of Indigenous people incarcerated in federal and provincial institutions is just alarming to this day. When I was working in corrections back in the 80s, I thought it was an Indigenous prison when I walked, when I walked into those prisons. It, it, there wasn't very many uh, non-Indigenous inmates. Like I, I, I was just floored. And it's still like that today. We still have so much work to do to address reconciliation. And I feel that we have to continue to build bridges with, uh, with everyone, with everyone across this country to, to really get the word out that, that there, there's a lot of work left to do. And we need to look at ways that can expedite reconciliation to where, where we feel as Indigenous people that we're satisfied that the way that we're trying to make it right is by securing funding from these two agencies that created this huge problem. Back then, they were making these archaic decisions. So we need to really sit down and talk about what can we do to achieve what we would like to do. And some of the stuff is, for example, uh, maybe looking at the child welfare agencies where Indigenous have to take control over that area. The correctional service system cannot be governed by just your non-Indigenous vision. There has to be Indigenous people control that take control over the Indigenous situation by managing and these institutions themselves uh, in a big way. How that is envisioned, like we have to look at that, looking at the political structure of having a political organization that's not funded by the government, finding one that can make a difference at the political level, at provincial and federal levels, and Lastly, with the churches, we have to zone in on those on the churches a bit a bit more aggressively because they don't know what to do with their money. Like their their funding, their foundation that they have, their funding 
that they give out is very meager. Like it's uh, it's 20,000, 30,000. But they do have projects like the Healing Fund. You can tap into it maybe 20,000 20, maximum or the Justice and Reconciliation Fund. I'm not saying the churches aren't doing something about it. They are. But I think we have to do more to work with them and see how they can work with us to make reconciliation a true relationship where, where we can address all the challenges that our Aboriginal Indigenous peoples are facing today in this country is still alarming to me. Even with all the social service that we have with friendship with the NAFC, Friendship Center Movement, with all the Indigenous nonprofits, we are not putting a dent in the bigger problems. Why isn't there a larger vision to for Indigenous to control their own areas of uh, challenges? Like I mentioned, those uh, we just need to take four or five areas uh, and and make it really controlled by Indigenous infrastructure and trying to bridge that gap and working in partnership with, with those funding agencies. Because even when it comes to funding, like the Legacy of Hope Foundation, I'm on the board of Legacy of Hope now, but I'm, I've had a soft spot for Aboriginal Healing Foundation. And I got a soft spot for Legacy of Hope Foundation because it became the organization that took over from AHF. And I feel really strongly that what AHF was doing with programming and uh, with everything they did as an agency was making a difference. And they were working really hard. I really thought that that agency was A1. Legacy of Hope, uh, it's a foundation. And I'm hoping that I can really help out with Legacy because it's it could be the one agency that can go into different areas because it's a foundation. It can go into uh, address the stuff that we've been talking about when when we use the word reconciliation, and which is why I'm so happy to say yes to the president and to the executive director of Legacy when they called me and I said, I said, of course I would do that. Uh, that's something I'm. I've always been passionate about that maybe I could be in a position to really to really help out where I can. And I'm hoping with my company here, Consulting Group, I'm able to make a difference there as well because I, I put my vision right with the company as well. So I'm really optimistic about the future because I have to be, and we all have to be, not just uh, a few of us, but I think we all have to try our best to make this a better place to live for indigenous peoples that are that are still struggling enormously in this country and i think we have to think big if we think about the smaller programs well we're losing the bigger picture this is this is why my my relationship with the church you know with the eastern ontario Woodaway region i'm working with the 200 churches there just just talking to them that's all I'm doing. I, I don't care if I don't get any contracts, but I just want them to understand that that Indigenous people want reconciliation. They know that, but how can we work together with that? And may, maybe it's something I bring up at one of our meetings with Legacy of Hope as well, is that what can we do to bring people together to talk about it on a bigger scale and, and not just work in a, in a small scale? But let's expand what we want to do and let's let's try and achieve the, the big picture where where we can 
where we can sit down and say, at the end of the day, Gord, we can sit down and say, we got 50 million for this. We got 75 million. We have half, you know, 500 million for this program. We're given the autonomy to fix the problems so that reconciliation can be can be worked on every day. So that's my mission. And that's what I would like to see is, is for, in a small way, at least I can make, make a little bit of a difference sitting with the Legacy of Hope Foundation as a board member and doing my part and trying to help other Indigenous nonprofits groups with their with their capacity building and stuff like that. So 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 hopefully I'm on the right track and, and I'm just happy to be talking about about this area of reconciliation because it's it's so so important for us to work hard on this and I and I know the commitments there with with legacy as it was with the Aboriginal Healing Foundation really did a good job passing the torch on to legacy and saying take it from there and to all the indigenous groups that are working hard to to make a difference but we want to go one step higher as high up as we can go to really get the funding the desired funding that we need to make a difference and that's what that's what I'm hoping will happen in the next in the in the in the future years to come. Okay, thank you, Morgan. Very well said. There's a lot there. We could probably spend another another hour talking about the different subjects that you brought up. But we've been talking to Morgan Hare, Hare Consulting Group, based out of St. John's, Newfoundland. Uh, Morgan, I want to thank you on behalf of Legacy Hope Foundation for doing this with us. And I want to welcome you to the Legacy Hope Foundation as, as, our, as our new board member. And uh, we look forward to doing many positive stuff with you uh, moving into the future. So thank you very much again for taking the time. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Ward. It's, uh, it's my pleasure to be available for this podcast. And I look forward to talking to you and your staff and visiting your offices when I when I get to Ottawa. For sure. We look forward to meeting you and uh, in person and working with you. Be rich. Okay, miigwech, Gord, and uh, and we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Roots and Hoots is a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Music is provided by David Finkel. For more episodes like this and to learn more about the work we are doing, please visit www.legacyofhope.ca to learn more.